Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to 2 Chronicles 33. Say, Pastor, wait a minute, I thought we were in a series on Ezekiel. Well, of course we're in a series on Ezekiel. Second Chronicles 33. Last week we began this series in a book sermon. Went through the entire book of Ezekiel, summarizing what is found throughout the book, applying those truths to our lives in a more uh, broad scope, so that as we focus in on the book throughout the next several months, we won't lose the forest for the trees. We will have seen what the Word of God has said on a broad context of what God is going for in the book. And then as we focus in, we can keep in mind what we've learned in the broad context. Well, this week I want to do something a little bit different. I want to explore together this evening how Israel got to the place that they found themselves in when the book of Ezekiel opens. We recall that Ezekiel is by a river, the river Kibar, basically a refugee camp outside of Babylon. Five years earlier, Israel had been taken into captivity. Ezekiel is 30 years old when he began, begins his ministry. How did they get there? How did the nation of Judah, Jerusalem as the capital, come to the place where they had fallen so far that God had allowed them to go into captivity, a captivity which would not end for 70 years as prophesied by the prophets of God. So, this evening, more or less, before we jump into Ezekiel 1, which we'll dig into next week, I would like to tell you a bit of a story. It's going to be a story with a point. We're going to walk through some passages of Scripture, and as we do so, we're going to learn some lessons. Learn some lessons regarding how it is Israel got, the the nation of Judah, particularly the city of Jerusalem, went from the covenant blessings of Jehovah God in the time of Solomon and even Rehoboam in the times of Josiah and Hezekiah to captivity. The story is of a king in the southern kingdom of Judah known as King Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of a very godly, very mighty king named King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is described in 2 Kings 18.3 as a king which did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father did. He was one of those proverbial good kings in Judah. There were many good kings in Judah, but he was one of those kings that if we were to rank them, he would be way high up there. He would be one of the best kings that Israel, that Judah in particular, ever experienced. He was a man of faith. He was a man of obedience. 2 Kings 18 verses 5 and 8 continues with the description of Hezekiah's reign saying this, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord, and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth, 
And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. He smote the Philistines even unto Gaza and the borders thereof from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. Second Kings 20 describes the final years of Hezekiah's life. In Hezekiah's latter days, he was, the scriptures tell us, sick unto death. As he was on his deathbed, he prayed unto the Lord, asking God for mercy, appealing to his obedience before God for this mercy, and God in his mercy and love and grace and goodness granted Hezekiah 15 more years of life. These 15 years, however, were not good years, godly years for Hezekiah. He became complacent in these 15 years. He began to become friendly with the nations around him. He showed Babylon. He invited them into the kingdom and showed them all of the riches of the kingdom. And in doing so, he began a chain of events that would lead to Judah's overthrow at the hands of the Chaldean Empire, specifically King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It's not King Hezekiah that we focus on today, however. We're going to focus today on King Hezekiah's son, a man named Manasseh. Please turn with me. Keep your thumb in Second Chronicles 33. We'll be back. Please turn with me to Second Kings 21. The kings and the chronicles are very similar in that they're both histories. However, the chronicles focus in specifically on Judah. The kings focus in on both Judah and Israel. In Second Kings 21... Look at me beginning in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed and he reared up the altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served him them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire, and observed times, and used enchantments, and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. And he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set graven images, or a graven image, excuse me, of the grove, that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, will I put my name there forever. Will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel to move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all that the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearkened not. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake by his servants the prophet, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such an evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. 
And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Note verse 15. Because they have done that which was evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day of their, since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt even unto this day, moreover Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had fulfilled Jerusalem from one end to another. Beside his sin wherewith he made Judah the sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. The rule of this king, King Manasseh, becomes the time in Judah's history where the timetable of Babylon's overthrow is established. And so it is that as we walk through the book of Ezekiel, the events described, the rebukes, the sin, the wickedness, all of these things that had entered into the nation of Judah at the time of Manasseh had done so in a way that had never been seen before in the land of Judah and became the foundation of the rebukes of Ezekiel and, by the way, of Jeremiah as well. You're back in Second Chronicles chapter 33. I would like us to see the consequences of sin in the life of God's people. The consequences of sin, and as we do so, we'll recognize that even in our own lives, that uh, we will see indeed the consequences of sin if we are allowing sin to rule and reign in our lives. We begin our narrative with a young man of 12 years of age. This is King Manasseh. Look with me in Second Chronicles 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 15 five years in Jerusalem. I told you before that God had given King Hezekiah, his father, 15 years of life after he had been previously on his deathbed. I told you already that those 15 years were not years of faithfulness, were not years of obedience. Rather, they were years of unfaithfulness to God in Hezekiah's reign. We understand from this that Manasseh was born three years into that 15 years of Hezekiah's final days upon the earth. To this end, we must understand that Manasseh was not alive to see the many years of obedience and faithfulness of King Hezekiah. He saw only those years of compromise, only those years of unfaithfulness of his father. He only experienced those latter days and therefore probably did not receive a very strong foundation in the scriptures and in the faith. And so we read in verse 2, But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel? Verses 3 through 10 are simply a summary of the evils that Manasseh performed in the land. The scriptures tell us that he built high places. When the scriptures speak of high places, they speak both of description and character. These places were literally elevated above the rest of the elevation, above the rest of that which was around them, above the normal landscape. They were geographically higher than the places around them. However, when you read about the high places in scripture, you are without fail reading about a place of worship, a place that was elevated in esteem, a high place built for the specific purpose of worshiping a god. Now, while there are instances of high places used to worship God, this was never really God's intent. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 11-12, we read of a young man named Saul. 
he was looking for a prophet. That prophet's name was Samuel. At the time, the scriptures tell us that Samuel was indeed at a high place overseeing the worship of Jehovah God. It says this, And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, Is the seer here? That would be Samuel. And they answered them and said, He is. Behold, he is before you. Make haste now, for he came today to enter today to the city, for there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As I mentioned, however, this was not God's perfect plan. God had commanded in Exodus chapter 20, verses 24 through 26, that any altar of God for offerings was to be made of earth and was not to be elevated above the people. He says, any altar of God made is to be made of earth, not of stone, and if of stone, then of unhewed stone, not carved stone, of simply you pick up the stones and you stack them. And if you are to make an altar to God, do not elevate it above the people. Do not make it a high place. God had commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, that certain offerings, tithes, and vows must be offered exclusively before the tabernacle of God, wherever it was the tabernacle was at that time. Unless distance disallowed. Now, if distance disallowed a person to get all the way to the tabernacle of God, then the scriptures tell us they were allowed to offer at the gate, but never at a high place. That being said, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 2-4 through 4, indicate that until the temple was built, high place worship was fairly common in Israel. High place worship was something that you would find throughout. Now, in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, as we continue, verses 4 and 5 state that he didn't just build high places, but he built altars specifically in the temple complex itself to false gods, worshiping them in the very face of Jehovah. Verse 6 speaks of him causing his children to pass through the fire in the valley of Hinnom. This was the practice of sacrificing their children to false gods. They would place their newborn child on a burning hot altar and watch as that baby burned to death in the name of this false god who desired fresh newborn baby sacrifices in order to appease his so-called wrath. It's not too unlike the modern abortion practice today, which claims 1,500 babies a day, 1.4 billion children since 1980. Verse 7 states that Manasseh carved out false gods and placed them in the temple of Jehovah. So in the courts of Jehovah, he placed altars to false gods. In the very temple itself, he carved out false images, a direct violation of the Ten Commandments, number one and number two. And he placed them in the temple of God itself. And so Manasseh caused the people of Israel to be worse than the heathen that were around them. And whenever the Lord sent a prophet to speak to Manasseh and to the people, the scriptures tell us that the people completely disregarded the prophet of God. They didn't want to hear it. They were not interested in it. They would completely disregard. Such was the life of Manasseh until we get to verse 11 of Second Chronicles chapter 33. And here we see, as it were, our second point. It's more of a story than a sermon this evening, I suppose. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 11 through 16, we see wholesale repentance of Manasseh through chastening. Look with me in verse 11. 2 Chronicles 33. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him, and was entreated of him, and heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now after this, he built a well without the city of David on the west side of Gaim in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate, encompassed about Ophel, and raised it up a very great height and put captives of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Since Manasseh would not listen to God, God took a different path of judgment with him. God had never done this to a king in this in such a respect before, God allowed Assyria to come in, the nation who had conquered the northern tribes of Israel, and brought Manasseh into captivity, into bondage. They took him and they exported him, deported him to Babylon. Now it's important to note that this was not the captivity of the nation. This was the captivity of the king. How many went into captivity with the king? We do not know. But this was not a captivity of the nation of Israel. Israel was still functioning while Manasseh went into captivity. They were still a sovereign nation. This is simply Manasseh being taken by the Assyrians and sold into Babylon. Now, this circumstance was sufficient in Manasseh's life to humble him before God. We read verses 12 and 13. They tell us that Manasseh completely humbled himself, completely repented, and he asked God to restore his kingdom. And God, in mercy, was uh, restored Manasseh to his kingdom. Manasseh became king once again. What mercy? And the scriptures tell us that when he was brought back to Jerusalem, in verse 13, then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Following Manasseh's repentance, he changed a great deal of what was going on in Israel. Verse 14 says he rebuilt the, the city of David, that would be Jerusalem, and secured it. Verse 15 tells us he removed the false god from the temple, as well as the altars that were in the temple complex. Verse 16 states that he repaired the altar of the Lord. Wholesale repentance through chastening. Repentance is often accurately defined as a change of mind that brings about a corresponding change of action. Manasseh's call to God, repentance before God, repenting of his sin, and in doing so it changed the very character of the kingdom into one that was not honoring God to one that was honoring God. Manasseh made Jehovah his God. And he worked for the rest of his days to undo the damage that he had caused in the years of ungodliness after the days of Hezekiah in the beginning of his reign. But as we think about this story of Manasseh, who started very poorly and indeed through chastening and repentance, seemed to end well, 
I'd like us to apply some lessons from the life of Manasseh this evening. Lesson number one, forgiveness is always available with God. Forgiveness is always available with God. Later on, in the book of Ezekiel, which technically we're in right now, in a manner of speaking, God will teach us concerning this very topic of forgiveness. Turn with me, keep your thumb in Second Chronicles 33. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel 18. Beginning verse 4, I read through verse 9. God speaking, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But if a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountain, neither hath lifted up his eye to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, he that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly, he is just. He shall surely live, saith the Lord God. Here God states that each man is dealt with according to his own heart before God, his own righteousness before God, and his own sin. A man is not judged by God for the sins of another, nor is a man blessed by God for the righteousness of another. Now Manasseh was a man who had sinned terribly in his reign. The immediate consequences of Manasseh's sin was captivity through Assyria into Babylon. Yet when he repented of his sin and returned unto the Lord, when his heart wholeheartedly turned from following his own way of wickedness to following the Lord and the righteousness that is found in the word of God, even a wicked man like Manasseh found forgiveness with God. But more than forgiveness, notice he found restoration as well. He was restored to a position of honor. He was restored to a position of prosperity as the king of Judah. God describes himself in Exodus 34.6 as merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And this forgiveness, both as taught in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, is founded in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In the Old Testament, Jesus Christ had not yet died on the cross, yet the Scriptures reveal to us in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain, since when? Before the foundation of the world. That even before his death in the physical timetable of history, his death had been established by the purposes of God. And so from the very moment man fell to sin and throughout eternity, the forgiveness of God is founded upon the reality that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every man's sin when he died upon the cross. So that any man who recognizes his sin confesses his sin, humbles himself before God, repents before God, will be saved and receive all the benefits of God's forgiveness in his life. The 
that there's a place for confession in the lives of believers as well, isn't there? The Bible illustrates the Christian life as a journey, as a walk, as a run, as a marathon, as a fight. Many analogies it uses. We have been washed clean from our sin through salvation, and yet, as the Scriptures describe it in the book of John, along the way we collect dust on our feet. And as Jesus Christ washed the feet of the disciples, and Peter said, Not me, Lord. Jesus Christ said, Then you have no part of me. Peter said, Then wash all of me. We talked about this in our John series. And Jesus said, You don't need to be washed thoroughly. You've been washed thoroughly. I simply need to wash your feet. We need to wash off that dust that collects on our feet, those sins that collect in our hearts. We lie, we cheat, we lust, we harbor pride, bitterness, anger. The Bible says that when we as Christians find these sins in our lives, if we regard our sin, the Lord will not hear us. But if we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we see the great forgiveness offered by God to all men who would humble themselves before Him. With this forgiveness comes restoration of fellowship and spiritual blessings of a personal relationship with God. But I'd like to reveal another lesson from this text this evening in Second Chronicles chapter 33. Forgiveness is a blessing given by God that restores us to fellowship with God. But that does not mean, forgiveness and restoration do not mean that our sin does not have consequences or that we will not need to endure those consequences. Forgiveness does not negate the consequences of sin. Notice with me sin's entrenchment. We read through verse 16. Look with me in Second Chronicles 33, beginning in verse 17. Let me start back in 16 for a little context. And he, that's Manasseh, repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, not a fun word in this context. Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord their God only. We see here a circumstance where even though Manasseh did his very best to reverse the damage that he had caused in Israel, he could not unroot the people from their sin. They had become entrenched in sin. The king might repent. The king might do everything in his power to change the policy of the nation. But the king cannot undo the damage done in the hearts of the people as they followed him into his years of sin. May I take a moment to speak to parents in the room this evening. Sin has consequences. As parents, those consequences go much farther than just you. When you, fathers, allow your family or lead your family or allow your family to follow you into sin, you are not just affecting the actions of the family, you are affecting the hearts of the family. And if at any point your heart finds repentance, you have no ability to help the heart of your spouse or of your children find that same repentance. Might they find that same repentance with you? They might. But we see an example of Manasseh who as king found repentance, but the people 
they did not find repentance. And so if we allow sins to enter our family, we're not just affecting us. We are indeed affecting our children. And perhaps it is that God would convict your heart and you as a parent would reverse the course for you and maybe even for your family. But what seeds of rebellion were planted in the hearts of your children? Now, are they a lost cause? No. With careful training and much prayer, we can lead the hearts of our children even out of the mistakes of their parents. We can help our children understand the full reasons why we did what we did, why we repented of that sin. The Word of God is quick and powerful and can do the work in the hearts of our children, but the consequences are indeed very real. So we see this consequence of Manasseh's sin, entrenchment in the hearts of God's people. A second consequence that we see, and I take you back to the Second Kings 23 passage for this, Second Kings 23. I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. The scriptures speak of King Josiah who came after Manasseh. Manasseh's grandchild, in fact. It says, And like unto him, that's Josiah, was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. Notice verse 16. Here's one of those unpleasant words in the context again. Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah. Why? Because of the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. Even though Manasseh had turned from his sin and got rid of the high places and destroyed the altars in the temple complex and removed the false gods from the temple, even though Manasseh's grandson Josiah had found the law and reinvigorated the people of God to serve God with all their hearts and turn to God with everything that they had and devoted themselves to the law that God had given on Mount Sinai. Manasseh's sin had been so great that God, His mercy, could not overlook Manasseh's sin and the consequences thereof. And as we consider the sins of Manasseh, the Scriptures reveal one particular sin that stands out above the rest, so much so that it is mentioned individually, mentioned specifically. It was a particular sin with which the doom of this nation was secured. Yes, Manasseh had erected false altars in the temple complex. Yes, Manasseh had made false gods and put them in the temple itself. Yes, Manasseh had led the people into greater sin than even the heathen around them. But the sin that was terrible enough that it got its own mentioning, apart from all of those other sins, well, look with me if you're still in Second Kings, at uh, chapter 24, just one chapter farther, in verses 3 and 4. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this that would be captivity upon Judah. 
to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did. There's the general statement. And also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. All of Manasseh's other sins were lauded together into the evil that Manasseh did. And then it says, along with all the evil that Manasseh did, and also the shedding of innocent blood. How was that innocent blood shed? Through sacrificing the children in the altar of false gods in the valley of Hinnom. God would not allow the innocent blood of those children to go unnoticed. And so, as Ezekiel prophesies, in the time of captivity by the river Kibar for some 27 years spanning the time when Jerusalem will fall to Babylon the foundation upon which all of that rested was the sin of Manasseh what doomed the timeline of Israel's captivity and destruction was the sin of Manasseh and particularly the shedding of innocent blood. Now, it would be beyond arrogant to assume that God will allow the innocent blood shed every day in this nation through abortion, much less the rest of this world, to go unnoticed as well. This is not a message on abortion. This is a message on the consequences of sin. But let's look at the natural understanding of what we see here. The sin of abortion has brought this nation to a new level of judgment. You can't get around that. Something that, according to the Word of God, even repentance will not divert. What will that judgment be? How long will that judgment be delayed? These things we cannot know. There was about 35 years between the end of Manasseh's reign and the beginning of the captivity in Jerusalem. And as our nation, this nation, becomes more and more entrenched in its sin, it would seem that we are, like Israel in the days of Manasseh, beyond the point of no return. But let me just mention this. We don't know that. And we can't know that. But here's what we do know. We know the character of our God. We know that forgiveness is always available with God. We know that God does not just forgive, but He restores. We know that our nation must be held accountable for the innocent blood shed in this land. We know that the world must be held accountable for the innocent blood shed in this world, but we don't know God's timetable. Could there still be revival? Yes. Could there be years and years of ministry left before that time? Yes. We are messengers not of doom. We are messengers of repentance in the face of the judgment of sin. Because when a wicked man turns from his sins... He finds mercy with God. What will we take? What should we take from this message this evening? It's very different from a normal message I would preach. But let me ask you some questions as we, as we close this evening. Number one, what are those sins in your life that are placing you in the path of God's chastening? as Manasseh was taken into captivity for his sins, my question, what are the sins in your life that are placing you on the path of God's chastening? Parents, 
what are the sins in your life that will cause your, your children to entrench themselves in sin. Allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart this evening. Are there things in your life that will lead you or those who follow you into unintended sinful consequences? One more question this evening. Are you busy spreading the gospel of repentance? The social ills of our society will not be cured by convincing people that unborn children are human. That's not going to do it. We're already seeing many people in government try to state that even after a child is born, they still have no right to live. It's not enough for us simply to try to cure social ills in the United States, much less the European Union. We will not cure these social ills by convincing people that sodomy is a choice and it's not genetically compelled. We will not convince society to turn morally good by telling them why things are morally bad. Society's ills will only be cured when they recognize that they are sinners and when they repent of that sin and when they turn to a holy God. And so the question we ask this evening is, are you preaching the gospel of repentance? As we look at the sins of Manasseh, we understand that there is forgiveness with God. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that our sins don't have consequences. And let's not fool ourselves into thinking that the sins of the society around us won't have consequences, but we are preachers of repentance. The gospel of repentance. And let's allow that to be the framework within which we pursue men and women in our society and in our nation and in our world.